Welcome to Twin Peak Cinema. Today's episode concludes the three-month miniseries Traumatic Transformations, which began in April with Belladonna of Sadness, a Japanese animated film. It continued in May with The Sweet Hereafter, a 90s Canadian film that was celebrating its 25th anniversary around the same time that Firewalk with me celebrated its 30th, and there are some deep connections there between those two films. And today we conclude with Mysterious Skin. So all of these films uh, have in common that they deal with the character's trauma in sometimes fantastical or sort of fabulistic, if I can make up a word, ways. Uh, in this case, it's probably the most, uh, well, I guess Belladonna of Sadness is the most overtly supernatural, but Mysterious Skin's case, uh, you have a very similar dynamic to Twin Peaks and how it digests its own uh, very down-to-earth trauma in these sort of larger-than-life ways. So we'll discuss those connections here. Uh, before we begin the discussion, I just want to note the other podcasts that I've released in the past month since the previous episode of Twin Peaks Cinema. One of them is the Twin Peaks Conversations episode for May, where I release part of it on uh, YouTube and then a Patreon exclusive for the $5 a month patrons. This was with Andreas Halskov. He wrote the book TV Peaks, among other uh pieces of scholarship on Lynch and Twin Peaks in general. We had a very sprawling conversation. Um, he, we, well, we began uh, with about a 45-minute public section and then continue for another hour and a half in the Patreon. So definitely check that out. On the Lost in the Movies feed, I continued the Christopher Nolan focus with the film Interstellar. I've also been continuing my Lost in Twin Peaks series. I put up the last few episodes of the Fire Walk With Me coverage uh, after the previous uh, Sweet Hereafter episode. And then I continued right into season three, which I was kind of uncertain about because I was really running behind. Like I was catching up with episodes the night before I was going to publish them. These are all already recorded for patrons. Uh, I actually recorded the season three ones before most of my Lost in Twin Peaks coverage back in 2018, but the repackaging of them has been very time consuming. So fortunately, I've just started to get ahead on those. Like I've kept up and now I'm getting a little bit of a backlog, so that's good. So I should be able to continue through the summer for the fifth anniversary of these episodes, uh, which aired back in 2017. So I've got parts one and two up, parts three and four, part five, and this current week when you're listening to this episode, if you're listening to it right when it comes out, I'm putting up the episodes of part six. And I have illustrated companions for this that go up after the week of episodes. So these are daily episodes, usually pretty short, like five to 20 minutes or so covering different elements of each episode. And that, that goes for like a week on each episode. And then the illustrated companion has screenshots and details, uh, character rankings, context from the time. So like time magazine covers and stuff, just a good thing to scroll through while you're listening. So check all of that out on my site. And one more podcast note every month on patreon.com for the dollar a month tier, I share an updates podcast, just sharing what I've been listening to in terms of podcasts, uh, other podcasts, what I've been watching for films, uh, what I've been reading, although I haven't been reading much lately, and the work I've been uh, doing behind the scenes. So it's just generally an updates podcast. This one also has listener feedback. And so the main feature of this episode that I put out for May, a few days late, so it's from early June, was The Morning Show. This was a show I didn't really have any interest in. I kind of stumbled across it and found fascinating connections to uh, Twin Peaks, among other things, but also my obsession with generations and eras, um, well, particularly eras, although I guess you could call it a 
fairly Gen X show given the cast, but uh, it's an interesting depiction of like the late 2010s, the early 2020s, the Me Too movement, COVID. Um, there's some Firewalk with Me, not just thematic, but structural components to it. So I thought all that was interesting. I had about I guess like a 14, 15 minute discussion. I had intended it to just be one of the many capsules, like a a couple minutes discussing what I'd seen, but there was so much to dig into that it became a series in focus for the center of that episode. And then in addition to that, I cover a ton of other subjects. I'll just read off the title for that and you can check it out for more details because this is just kind of a skimming across the surface. But I talked about the films Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, Belfast, Benjamin Franklin. I talked about Latin American history, The Office Finale, Joan Chen's career, the Oscars slap, of course, who could avoid that hot topic, generational shifts, and then an archive reading about making my movie Class of 2002, and uh, some more stuff as well, obviously. Uh, We'll talk about Class of 2002 in a second. And I also share some of my character series advances, but since we're just limiting ourselves to the podcast work, uh, I'll I'll stop there. I, I will note... You know, at the outset of my Lost in the Movies episodes, I share all of my work from the past month. I try to keep it more limited on the other podcast feeds. I just share my other podcasts, but I have a lot of non-podcast work as well. So, uh, I mean, if you want to dig into that archive, there's several thousand pieces in there. So, uh, lostinthemovies.com for all of that. And uh, I also mention, even though it's not a podcast... Uh, Worth mentioning, I did also publish my short film, Class of 2002, on my YouTube feed, uh, or my YouTube channel, rather. This had been published 10 years ago, uh, but since it's now the 20th anniversary of the Class of 2002, I thought it would be a good time to republish it. It's basically a fictional documentary, so I'll link below to a piece you can read uh, about that. Okay, so that's it for the connections. Now we're uh, going to rewind a a couple decades for this as well this came out in 2004 the film mysterious skin and talk about its connections to twin peaks which unlike many twin peaks cinema subjects was fairly conscious summer i was eight years old five hours disappeared from my life five hours gone without a trace are you ready? Here we go. Tonight on World of Mystery, we investigate the terrifying world of UFOs. I think I was taken too. I keep a log of all my dreams. Someone else is with me. Another boy. You're on your way to uncovering the truth. Maybe concentrate on that other boy in your dreams. He could help you find the answers you're looking for. I know all Neil's secrets. There's shit there you don't even want to know about, trust me. I'm looking for an Ann McCormick. Mysterious Skin takes place mostly in Kansas, although part of it is set in New York City. It's about two boys who share a traumatic experience early in their childhood, deal with it in radically different ways, and uh, don't meet again until the end of the film. I say again, but we don't actually start with the incident itself. Uh, We start with almost kind of like a black hole, a void, much like Twin Peaks, uh, where we're starting with something happened here, and it's being pieced together throughout the film. Now, we can get a sense of what it was for one of those uh, boys, Brian, played by Brady Corbett, Um, by looking at the other storyline, because we go back and forth between these two narratives. 
Um, in Neil's case, play, he's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, as an adult. We see both of them as young kids, about eight years old, and then later on um, as uh, like 18, 19. I think one of them actually turns 19 in the film. Uh, interestingly, Brady Corbett was extremely young when this was shot. He was 14, which he looks much older. Um, Gordon-Levitt was, I think, like in his early 20s or something. They seem like the same age. Uh, Michelle Trachtenberg, who people, Nickelodeon viewers will remember, I think she was on The Adventures of Pete and Pete. I know she was in the Harriet the Spy film. She was like a child actor at this time in the 90s, uh, at that at that time in the 90s. Um, and then this uh, this film, she's like 18 or 19 as well. So they're all sort of young adults finished with high school going off into the world. Um, one of them is in Brian is in community college. Neil is a hustler at this point. And Wendy is, uh, she's going off to New York just to kind of, they, they don't really say what, what, you know, she's following a dream or going to school or whatever, but she's like working in a bar and stuff. And Neil goes and lives with her at a certain point. So these are where these characters are in their lives when most of the movie takes place. But the whole or the whole early sequence unfolds focusing on what happened to these these kids at eight years old. And as far as Brian is concerned, it had something to do with an alien abduction. He saw this light, he disappeared for a, a long time. He had recurring bleeding noses and dreams in which aliens are examining him, and he becomes obsessed with UFOs. And, you know, he recognizes Neil at one point coming out of a Halloween party. They don't know each other that well, but they were on a Little League team together, and he's like, okay, so this kid, something, he was involved somehow. I think he got abducted too, and he becomes so obsessed with it that uh, eventually he seeks out Neil, and he finds his friend Eric, and uh, they actually kind of become friendly, and... uh, but but Neil at that point has just gone to New York, so he doesn't get to meet him till the end of the movie. But he spends the movie trying to figure out what this alien encounter might have been. He even goes off to he sees a TV special where they interview this woman Avalyn and uh, a farm girl who says she had some experiences being abducted. And he goes and visits her, and they become kind of friendly. But then when she makes advances on him. Uh, he gets really uncomfortable. He's described as Eric, who is very much like a gay teen, um, as being, he, he sees Brian as being kind of asexual. And uh, he's sort of uncomfortable being touched and all of that. Um, so something happened, and, and he's not sure what it is, but he's starting to piece it together. And that, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting to describe it this way, to tell you his story first, because as I said, the film is giving you the details of both at once. And it's a great approach. It's a great structure. It kind of pulls away the... I read a review of this. Um, I'll link it below on a blog. It was mostly like a Blu-ray analysis of the quality and all that. But they do say in a sort of an opening intro that the interesting thing about this story is they're not trying to like trick you or tease you or make you figure out what's going on. Um, They're telling you it as... Like they're giving you the details right away and it's more about the emotional effect. Now, all of that said... Obviously, you know, if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with this film. Obviously, spoilers are going to abound in this discussion. But uh, early on, when we follow Neil's story, we find out pretty likely what happened. Because him and Brian were on the same, were on this uh, team together, uh, this Little League team. 
So what happened to Neil, we can surmise may have something similar may have happened to Brian, which is where his blocked out memories come from. And what happened to Neil is the coach took a liking to him, had him come over to his house and ended up molesting him repeatedly, um, grooming him and abusing him through the years. They're like disturbing scenes that fortunately don't show much of anything, but they give you the sense of how this guy is pulling this needy kid in who's lacking a father. Put it this way, they don't try to make in the film like, oh, he's gay because he was molested by this guy. Like it explains he was already um, knew, you know, he kind of knew he was gay as a little kid, but it, it wasn't like that because that kind of can be a trope of these types of uh, abuse stories sometimes, I think, that, you know, that that is somehow a result. One thing is the result of the other. But it does definitely send him in certain directions where he ends up becoming a hustler as a teenager. He's always seeking out older men. And he tells himself that this was, you know, that this the coach really cared about him and he was special and loved him and all this stuff. And he this is his way of dealing with this this molestation. We also see some horrible things from when he was a kid where he molests another kid and uh, we get the scent like the, like he thinks this is sort of a normal and his friend Wendy, the one played by Michelle Trachtenberg, is is witnessing this. She's the only one who knows his inner darkness that he has. And so we're seeing these two stories back and forth and they're so unrelated in some ways, yet they both stem from the same incident because as you can guess, Brian was taken over to the coach's house at one point and molested there as well. And he just totally blacked it out and came up with this more fanciful story about UFOs and something that is much less sordid and and damaging to think about, even though, you know, you wouldn't want to be abducted by UFOs, but maybe you would if if this was the alternative. So eventually at the end of the film, Neil has gone off to New York to join Wendy. He's hustling there. In New York, uh, Wendy has kind of a funny line in context where it takes something sort of innocent from The Wizard of Oz and puts a darker spin on it where she says, we're not in Kansas anymore, literally, but also figuratively. Uh, this film also takes place, I should mention, in 1991, uh, right around when Twin Peaks was on the air. The scenes with the kids take place in 1981, so it's been about 10 years. Interesting element of that is the fact that it's against the backdrop of the AIDS crisis, and uh, Neil is not worried about that at all in Kansas. Um, they keep stressing over, oh, we're in Kansas, we're in the middle of nowhere, which is a little bit of a stretch, I think. But obviously AIDS was impacting all over the country at that point, but certainly still more concentrated in some of the cities. And uh, the scene when he's in, or one of the scenes when he's in New York, he's picked up by a guy who I think is played and directed in a very interesting way where the guy has a sinister look about him, and I, I think it's almost playing off of stereotypes, maybe sort of homophobic stereotypes about a predatory uh, figure. And then when he takes um, Neil home, he takes off his shirt and he has lesions and sores all over his body, and he just basically wants a massage. He's not going to have sex and infect Neil, but he just wants somebody to touch him, basically. And it becomes this poignant moment. And I think a breakthrough for Neil, where there's also this giant close-up of a Vermeer painting staring out at him, the famous one of the woman looking over her shoulder, the girl with the pearl earring, I believe. And it crystallizes this moment, I think, where he's being exposed to vulnerability in a way that he usually has his guard up against. And it opens up his own wounds.
uh, I think this is a, a key point for him, just as Brian has his certain key points along the way as well. And he ends up being beaten savagely by a guy in Brighton Beach, this big burly guy who picks him up and uh, locks him, like, rapes him basically in the bathroom. And so he ends up coming back to New York. He's all bruised. He's been through a lot. He's had kind of a lot to think about. E- each of these characters goes on their own arc separately. They come together in the end, but the journey that they kind of travel to find out more about who they are and where they've been is uh, is is very is very different and very independent. And so the film ends with them breaking into the house where the coach used to live, and Neil guides him around and tells him everything that happened that night, all the horrible details of it, and just brings it down to earth and Brian kind of cries in his arms. And then there are carolers outside singing silent night. And uh, the film ends there zooming up into the blackness as these two characters are, are trying to comfort one another in this, in this room where both were abused as little children. So it's a very dark story, but beautifully told uh, great performances, wonderful cinematography and editing. And, and uh, this is the, I no, I've seen two films by Greg Araki actually. Um, the other one was the Shailene Woodley one, which Cheryl Lee is actually in, which came out after this. But he's got a lot of earlier films, which I think are more kind of frenetic and maybe controversial in a way. Like there, some of them, some people really like them, some people really hate them. I guess Roger Ebert gave some of them zero stars, so be interesting to check those out at some point. But this is probably the film he's most well-known and celebrated for, and it was pretty well-received overall. I mean, it's just got such a fascinating conceit and hook. Um, even on its own, if it was like any any each of these character stories on their own, the fact that they're told separately and kind of come together, I think, gives it just a whole extra level of fascination, which is also, of course, structurally very Lynchian to tell these two stories that come together. Um, his are much more kind of abstract and they don't come together in quite so logical a way. I, that's not the right word. There is a, there's like a dream logic to them, but um, this is more grounded in a kind of psychological, a literal psychological uh, reality and trauma there. But uh, Greg Araki is a big fan of Firewalk with me. Uh, he's said in the past that Cheryl Lee's performance in that is like just an all-time great performance. It had a profound effect on him. And I think you can see aspects of Firewalk with me in this film. It's not a screenplay. He, I think he might have co-written the screenplay, but it's based on a book. Um, uh, on a, you know, so so the story was not of his origin. Um, and obviously, the fact that it deals with how somebody builds this kind of mythos in a way around their abuse and sort of removes it and puts it in another category in, in firewalk with me it's more ambiguous to what extent is it really su- is there really a supernatural aspect um to what extent is this a cover for a psychological trauma i mean i would say the film ultimately makes it clear that it's kind of both um, i've heard some interesting theories a great essay i'll link below called uh, cherry pie wrapped in barbed wire where somebody figures like maybe if the spirits are real, they're drawn toward somebody who needs them as a kind of a cover story in a way. So like both the human reality and the spirit world reality, both kind of mesh in that way. So that that's interesting to think about. But in Mysterious Skin, it seems pretty clear that the alien UFO stuff is totally a smokescreen for whatever happened to him. It may be for the other woman as well that he encounters at a certain point. Um, she she may have she may be covering her own abuse this way. It's it's not entirely clear. We don't 
which I think is a strength of the storytelling, that it leaves that ambiguous, what exactly happened to her. And I think for Brian kind of coming up with this more comfortable cover story in a way, more comfortable and exciting because it's like an adventure to go looking for the UFOs and find out more and he's part of this big thing. It's interesting that in a way resembles the film itself, all of all of these films, this film, Firewalk with Me, and also Sweet Hereafter. There's a sense that there's like a kind of a lyrical overlay, a poetic kind of um, abstraction removal laid on top of this really sordid, horrible experience that helps you kind of contemplate it, gives you some remove from it as well, but never totally sugarcoats or hides what is at the root of all of this and leads you there eventually as, as, as part of the story. And another interesting thing about this movie in relation to Twin Peaks is uh, there is one cast member who's present from the show, Chris Mulkey, who uh, of course played Hank on the Twin Peaks, and he plays a different but sort of similar character in a way here where it's the dad of Brian who just isn't there for his son, and the son even blames him a bit for the fact that the coach was even able to to take him to his house because the dad didn't pick him up from a rainy game or whatever. So in a sense of being a derelict in his familial duties, he's similar to Hank, but he has a totally different personality. He's kind of mild-mannered and passive and not there, as opposed to like duplicitous and and uh, manipulative as, as Hank is. So there's one thread connecting it to the original series, but I would say in most ways the similarities are to Firewalk With Me and uh, the end, the very end of season three, part 17 and 18 there, which are of course in a way commentaries on Firewalk With Me, looping back around to it as I've discussed in Twin Peaks conversations and elsewhere. Um, going back, revisiting that ground and trying to understand it from the outside and sort of concluding that you can't understand Laura and Firewalk with me from the outside. You have to experience the film itself. That's really my main takeaway in a lot of ways from season three. So the character who is probably most similar to Laura Palmer in this is uh, Neil McCormick, the character played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the the young hustler. He's described at one point by Wendy as, as she says, where most people have a heart, Neil McCormick has a bottomless black hole. And if you don't watch out, you're going to fall in and get lost forever, which is so similar to the way that people often describe Laura when they've gotten close to her darkness. You know, some of them just see him as this, as, as see her as this sort of beautiful, uh, maybe tragic figure if they knew enough, but if they, or if they knew you know, a little more. But if they know enough about her, they they know that there's this kind of vortex of pain and anger and suffering there. Bobby talks about being sucked into it. I've always seen the structure of Twin Peaks as being like a vortex, getting pulled into Laura's trauma slowly from the periphery, from the outside, further and further in. And uh, as with Laura, Neil has this sort of private inner domestic experience that then launches him into encounters with the underbelly of the local community. So we get a little of that in Firewalk with me with the scene at the roadhouse where she prostitutes herself. But I think, uh, and and, you know, the stuff with Jacques and Leo and all of that, but really we mostly get that through the secret diary of Laura Palmer written by Jennifer Lynch, which also feels like it has such a strong connection to this film. It's like Laura in a way is Brian and Neil at the same time, you know, trying to sort of work her way through this mystery of what's happening to her and also knowing all too well in a way what's happened to her in certain ways and bringing that out into the world and her interactions with other people and her friends being drawn to her, but also kind of afraid of her not quite able to understand what's going on. And it's just a fascinating dynamic for a character. Neil, I think on the surface is a lot more sort of 
cool and calm and collected. He, uh, I mean, he freaks out at times for sure, but he generally has this air of somebody who is in control of the situation, even though quite clearly that's not entirely true. But that's the impression he gives his friends. I think by the end of her life, Laura seems a little more out of control, um, certainly when we see her in Firewalk with me. Um, so that's a difference in their sort of their their demeanor there, but they're coming from this similar place. And another difference, of course, is Neil, I think, has been more, uh, he was more deeply groomed into accepting what was happening and, and rationalizing it as something that was a positive experience and all of this, whereas Laura is always sort of tormented and grossed out by by Bob and what's happening. It's it's almost like, I think when Leland says, I always thought you knew it was me and Firewalk with me, like he's saying what the coach says to to Neil and is more effectively able to sort of manipulate Neil into in mysterious skin. This idea of like, oh, well, we're doing this together type of thing that I think, unfortunately, a lot of abusers use as a, as a rationale. And with this character, with Neil and with Laura, Uh, obviously in the end, the outcome is different. I think in part because, I mean, we can't say the outcome is different because it ends in that moment and they've talked about how it's an ambiguous ending and they could go in a positive place or a negative or more likely just that sort of ambiguity throughout, you know, um, trying trying to deal with this. But there is some sense of catharsis in that he's able to let Brian know what happened to him. There's no healing in that sense, but there is at least an opening. There's there's a connection made between these two that Laura is never able to make with anybody in her life. It's a totally tragic solo struggle to the very bitter end. And then of course we get that scene after with her and Cooper in the lodge, which I think I really I really want to talk about in relation to this film because I think there's something profound there. Um, to relate. But before we get to that, I also just want to note Brian, even though he's a very different character than Laura in a lot of ways, very mild mannered, again, very asexual, um, sort of an innocent in some ways. I actually see him as quite similar to Cooper in a lot of ways, which we'll talk about. But there are some similarities in that, like Laura, he's trying to sort of solve his own mystery, keeping a journal that he writes in and and has this, this whole kind of li- separate life and trying to figure out these kind of larger uh, forces working on him in in a similar way to Laura, since she's at the mercy of these spirits that she's exposed to in dreams and everything like that. There's also the scene where his dad comes to give him a cake, like after, or or to give him some present after his birthday is already over and he's upset that is at his dad and he starts yelling at him. And the dad just finally says, I can't help you. I'm sorry. Like he's just, he can't be there for him. And the confrontation, it almost makes me feel like if Laura could say what Bobby says, not to her father, because her father's in a whole different relation with her than Brian is, but to the community as a whole. Like, why weren't you there for me? Why couldn't you see? Why Why did you let this happen to me? Um, which Bobby pretty much says to all of them at the funeral. And it's just interesting to see the character. It's It's not like a friend of the character saying, you weren't there for them. It's the character themselves able to say it to the people who didn't protect them who looked the other way, or just weren't capable. I think with the Twin Peaks particular, you can get very judgmental about it, but at the same time, it's like, well, what what were they going to do? Were they going to like kick down her door and say, what's going on here? They're, they're, part of the tragedy is there wasn't necessarily 
um, something more, or at least there wasn't clearly something more they could do to help. I think with here, it's a little different because the dad, you know, has some responsibility to his son that he, uh, he ignored. Now, maybe something would have happened anyways, but in this case, there is sort of a connection there. But I just found that scene interesting because I think with Brian and Neil both, and with Laura in Firewalk with me, you get the sensation of seeing what we can't see in Twin Peaks, the show, which is the victims themselves struggling through all of this and trying to figure out what happened. Uh, Twin Peaks is about other people trying to figure out what happened. Mysterious Skin and Firewalk with me about people trying to figure out their own mysteries. Both Firewalk with me and Mysterious Skin begin with these visual abstractions, these shapes, these colors moving through the screen. A lot of Lynch films begin uh, with abstractions. Martha Nockhamson has wrote how it's always, it's it begins in the chaos and then it pulls out to something more grounded, but it wants us to know from the beginning that these sort of elemental forces are out there, that that's the nature of the universe. And the more grounded reality is is actually more of a facade. In Mysterious Skin, it's serial falling because um, the coach, when he has the uh, Neil at his house, he's opening up these cereals saying, oh, your mom won't let you eat junk food. We'll eat these. And then he pours the cereal over his head and they're laughing. And that's the first time when he... Uh, molests him and then in fire walk with me it's opening with these blue shapes the static and we pull out and it's a tv set that's then smashed by leland as he kills Teresa, who he's killing because she kind of discovered the connection between him and laura it's as it's just sort of an externalization of his own angst over what he's been doing to his daughter what he ends up taking out on Teresa, and that's kind of the secret of that mystery which leads to the other one um so of course fire walk with me like uh Mysterious Skin also tells two stories, but it doesn't weave them together. First, we start with the mystery where we're held on the outside, we can't break through, and then we're given the Laura story. So first, the Chet and Sam stuff in Deer Meadow, then the Twin Peaks material kept separate. Later, Lynch will intertwine things a little more by Inland Empire. They're very much wound together, but uh, he he tends to separate out the stories in most of his films up to that point. Mulholland Drive, you know, we have one part then the next, then then sort of the twist at the end. Uh, although we do have, that's not true, because we have all those different storylines going on at the same time, but we're not sure how they're connected until the end kind of gives them a way to tie them together, since it was designed as a TV pilot with all these different story strands, and then wound up as a feature film. Lost Highway, how would I put this? So it's not structurally the most similar to Mysterious Skin, because again, Mysterious Skin is showing these two stories cutting back and forth between them. Lost Highway does... One character story, then he sort of changes into another character, goes in another direction, then it brings them together at the end. But in terms of having like two different character storylines that are bound together, if that makes sense, that would maybe be the one that I would I would draw the most uh, connection to there. Uh, I would love to watch Mysterious Skin. It would be interesting to see it as like a fan edit where they basically told the Brian story first and then you would rewind for the Neil material before the final scene. Now, of course, having seen the movie and knowing, uh, you know, where it's going, it, it wouldn't be like you you were as in the dark as Brian, but still, just structurally, it would be an interesting way to watch it, where you're following the sort of more removed mystery first, and then you go back, and you get the, the Neil story all in succession, and then they come together in the end, much like with Twin Peaks and Firewalk Me, where you're given that removed version first, then you're given the prequel of, Here's what really happened. 
um, going deeper into it, as with Mulholland Drive. Something about that type of structure fascinates me. I'm not saying Mysterious Skin should have been that structure. I think it's um, quite effective and powerful the way it's told. It's just interesting as like a thought experiment to think of it that way, um, told in that fashion as well. And even not doing it in that fashion, the fact that we're given Brian's scenario first in the opening minutes where it's like something happened. Uh, he says actually like there was a pitch black void uh, or something like that, that, that he can't remember from this, this certain night where he lost five hours of his life. So it's starting with that idea of a void that must be filled and then using the supernatural to do that. But then it quickly turns out as soon as we're given Neil's story, it's psychological. And I, I think again, to, to, actually point out what does work about this film structure there's something just really uh strong about having to um toggle between these two realities back and forth and back and forth slightly disorienting about it to go into one mode of storytelling and it's so deftly woven together i just think i don't know if the book does this if it alternates chapters in the different characters voices i would guess it probably does um but it's just very effective storytelling in terms of the film. And uh, when I say that I would be intrigued to separate out the two stories and see them distinctly as well, that's not to say that would necessarily be an improvement. I think it's quite powerful this way. There's a line where uh, Avalyn is talking to Brian and she's telling him, you're on your way to uncovering the truth. Think of yourself as a detective following clues. Maybe concentrate on that other boy in your dreams. He'd help you find the answers you're looking for all of which feels very uh, Cooper to me. I, I mentioned already, and I guess this is the point to get into it, that Brian in some ways reminds me of Cooper. Just I think Cooper maybe has... I wouldn't call Cooper like a, a nerd per se in that he, he has that kind of rationalistic side, but he also has this moody, intuitive, new-agey side. Brian, I think he's very brainy. He's very like trying to figure out, but also has the passion and the curiosity and the kind of the innocence of Cooper in a way. And as he gets deeper into the mystery or closer toward a solution of it, he's starting to realize what was going on. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I really like about the way that kind of flow of the material works is when he, when Brian goes to the house with Neil, he already has, a, he's not like, okay, so this is where the aliens took us. Like he already kind of knows more what's happening like he's figuring it out little by little there's even a drawing he draws for eric the mutual friend who is also a nice character i, I liked his place in the story is this normal guy in a way of uh observing these two characters and uh trying to figure out from the outside what's going on there almost like a donna he's kind of donna and james wrapped up in one i would say i think wendy is she's a little different she's not like she's almost like what Lara needed in a way. She needed a Wendy in her life and she never got one. She just got these characters who were just way, she was way out of their league in terms of what, uh, you know, these friends, uh, in terms of what they knew. I, I suppose maybe in a way like Bobby uh, was to her where they were both in it together to a certain extent, but their relationship was very toxic in a way that Wendy's and, and, uh, Neil's is not quite. So to go off on a little side there, but yeah, Eric is a very kind of sweet Jamesy Donna-ish type of character, I think who's in love with Neil, but Neil is just 
Neil is in a place that he doesn't quite understand, and Wendy has to warn him away in a way. To get back to that, Brian is drawing a picture that he shows Eric of the alien, and then from the waist down, it's wearing like uh, pants and the, the baseball cleats. And so he's like figuring out as it goes along. I think the big turning point is Avalon has him reach inside of a dead cow that she says was killed by the aliens and the sexual organs were removed. There's no blood. It's kind of gross scene. And she has him like touching the corpse, like reaching inside of it. And that's when he starts to remember the physical aspect of the abuse that was happening with the coach. So I think that's the big breaking point. Also when she's starting to hit on him he gets really uncomfortable. So there's these like points along the way, but there's no clear moment where it's like, Eureka, aha, oh my God, this is what happened. Um, and he needs to be reminded by Neil to know the details. But by the time he gets to that house, he tells him like, I'm tired of these dreams. I, I, I'm tired of this being haunted by this. It's clear he's kind of moved past the UFO thing. And he probably has some sense that that there was, uh, of what type of thing happened to him there. Up to that point... Uh, the the handling of the UFO stuff, it feels very sort of in tune with, I mean, really with X-Files, when we're talking about 90s TV shows, but Twin Peaks itself was kind of an influence on X-Files, so there's a connection there. But just this idea of the excitement of UFOs, there's something out there, there's a bigger mystery we're piecing together. I remember being a little kid and being obsessed with like UFOs and aliens and that type of thing. And there's almost, you know, it can be spooky, but there's like a fun quality to it. Um, there's that shot where the light is shining through the trees early on. I don't know if it's supposed to be a dream or, or some sort of inflated memory, but there's a scene where Brian's whole family stands out on the roof and they see this UFO, this flying saucer, actually flying directly above them. And when it's shining its lights through the trees, it looks like that sequence in Twin Peaks where Major Briggs is kidnapped. And I find it interesting that that moment takes place in the episode with the wake scene of, of Leland's Wake, where they're trying to sort of bury the Laura Palmer story and all of its dark intimations of sexual abuse and it's like okay let's pivot to uh, now there's a white lodge and there's a mythology out in these woods and oh look a, a light's come and now major briggs is taken away what's happening there it's like frost has written about ufos as a masking experience in uh, secret history and just talked about it in interviews or i guess actually it's more the ufo experience was being masked by something like a vision of an owl or something like that but ufos themselves also can serve that function of like tell yourself a story about an alien abduction which is easier to deal with than the human abduction that that happened and it's always fascinated me that twin peaks pivots hard in that direction of like this mythology of the spooky old woods at the very moment it's come closest to the core of the laura leland mystery and brian is able to turn that experience into something that can be fun and absorbing and spooky in a safe way but at its core there's still something deep dark and profoundly haunting and if it's kept at a certain distance it's like that keeps pulling him forward but it's like once he gets too close, it's, it's the, that that aspect of it. I mean, it makes me think of Twin Peaks in a way too, where it's like with Twin Peaks, it's the, at the heart of it is always the it's it's Laura's story, it's her trauma, and then on the periphery, there's all of this more fun or pleasant or engaging stuff. And one of the things I've found as I've like talked about Twin Peaks over the years is you can sort of like pull out and look at one aspect of it. And, um, you know, kind of almost get lost in that part of it. And I've done a lot of that. I've talked about all the different characters and, and thing and storylines and all of that, breaking the series down in that way. But it's interesting that 
getting back into it in 2014, it was very much concentrated around Fire Walk with me and Lauren. It's like you can pull away from that, but there's always that kind of center to it. And um, eventually, you know, that that kind of overwhelms everything else uh, as it should, as I think in the storytelling itself it did with Fire Walk With Me, which again brings me to some of my like confusions in a way about season three of like, okay, well, once you've gotten to that point, how do you go beyond that? When that is all unveiled and revealed, what's left? And so figuring out how season three can exist in that aftermath is a constant struggle in a way. And when Lynch and Frost came back to it, they that that well, certainly for Frost and I think maybe even to a certain extent for Lynch that wasn't the center of it but I do think you know for like they were coming back to other things about Twin Peaks put it that way they were coming back to this idea of well whatever happened to Cooper and what do you think the town is up to all this time and what's it like to age in the world and, th- and all those things are important too but I think once Twin Peaks was established as far back as the pilot as having at its core this tragedy of Laura Palmer and this corpse watched up on shore. Who is this person? What is this? This holds the answers to everything else in some way, in some, you know, abstracted, uh, tenuous way that you can never really move beyond or outside of that. And the greatness of Firewalk with me is that it snaps season two, which tried to do that back into place. But now I feel like I need something to snap season three back. And in a way, um, we're getting off track here on this, this little tangent, but uh, in a way, that thing is still firewalk me. It's pulled back toward firewalk with me. One thing I was thinking about as regarding all of this with with mysterious skin is like this is how religions start in a way. It seems like an odd thing to say, but like they start with this profound experience. Now, I think with many religions, it's more of a positive experience in a way. Um, obviously, these are like dark. Um, brutal, traumatic experiences that these characters go through but there's a profound emotional weight to them. And I think with religion, it's like that, where there's like some sort of mystical understanding that often does have some trauma and pain associated with it. And then around that core emotional experience, all of this sort of other things come about, these rituals, these texts, these practices, these communities. And so you see that in this film where it's like these characters build these whole lives out of what happened to them where uh, in Brian's case, it's all this UFO stuff going, you know, doing his little research projects, going to the library and looking stuff up and watching the specials and meeting these people and reading all the books. And with Neil, it's his entire existence as a hustler, uh, just pushing himself into dangerous places with these strangers that he's meeting in parks and stuff like that until they're all familiar in the town. Now he wants to go to New York and, and uh, spread his wings there and, uh, you know, all of this, the seeds of both of these experiences are, are their molestation as kids. And it's like, they can get so far removed from that, but then something sort of snaps them back to it. Trauma in a way is like a, a, a dark religious, uh, experience, I suppose, I, I think, if that makes sense. It's sort of an odd way to put it, but I think people have written about the connection between that experience and like fairy tales and all of that have also dug into that, this idea of like the psychological root of a mythos. There's one line at some point in Mysterious Skin where one of the characters, I think it's Neil, yeah, when he's narrating, it's actually at the end of the film, he says, I wish there was some way to go back and undo the past, but there wasn't. 
And that, of course, is immediately makes me think of the end of season three, just for the obvious reason that Cooper actually does go back and supposedly undo the past, but it doesn't work. Like something goes wrong. Even if we believe that somehow he prevented Laura being murdered, she's pulled away. There's this whole continuing thread into Odessa and then back to Twin Peaks. I was certainly struck by the fact watching this for the first time since season three that we have a character who is traveling across a country because Neil is coming back for Christmas from New York, travels across a country to take another character back to the house that was like the source of their trauma and pain and remind them of who they are and what happened that they don't remember. But the difference there is, again, this just profound difference between um, Cooper and these characters. And in this case, it's funny, you know, I talked about how Brian is a little more like Cooper in some ways and Neil is a little more like Laura. But in this moment, Neil is playing the Cooper role and Brian is playing the Laura role. He's taking him to this house and he does something Cooper can't. Cooper goes to the front door, knocks on the door, announces himself as FBI and is refused and he's completely stymied. Neil, on the other hand, goes around to the back. He finds a window, opens it and is able to get in the house that way. So there's a striking difference there. Obviously, you can't analogize the two situations. He was only able to break in the house because nobody was there. Cooper's not going to sneak around and that wouldn't that that's not why he was going there anyways. He was going there to find Sarah, which may be part of the problem with what he's doing there because he's trying to like go back to that night in some way, even when it's not that night years later. Even when he literally does it, it doesn't work. And when he tries to do it in some other time, you know, we don't know what time, what year is this and all of that. Sarah's not at that house. It's not her house. They don't know who Sarah is. He's trying to force something instead of being guided by the flow as he is at his best as a detective with the dream and everything in in the original series. And I think on a more profound level, Neil and Brian, they can connect in this human, in in this way, this emotional way because of their shared trauma, the fact that they were there, that they were you know, doing that they were that Neil was doing these things to him at the coach's behest. The darkness of their connection is also what allows them to console one another at a certain point as fellow victims. Uh Cooper doesn't have that and if he could in some way, which it's never quite made clear what that way would be, if it would be in connecting to his own trauma with Caroline and then somehow bringing that to the table or what, or if it's just a matter of empathy that he lacks some sort of fundamental ability to to be to place himself inside Laura's experience. Like he can't be part of Firewalk with me in that. I mean, he's in the film, but you know what I mean? There's a disconnect there. I can't quite get on board with the idea that Cooper is on the right track in part 18, going down like an automaton, going down to Odessa, Texas, getting Carrie Page in the car, driving up to Washington, bring her to the house, letting her sit like even if he's being used or manipulated as some sort of pawn in a way that with Lynch, it's like, if that's off, then the result is off as well. The process is so important to the, to the, uh, the consequence. Mysterious Skin, on the other hand, it's more like the coming together of two halves that have been separated throughout this film, that they're out of sync. And the author of the book has even talked about how these two characters are basically aspects of his personality. The similarities are all there. Someone else lives in this house now. They This is the house where everything happened, but uh, Cooper, Cooper can't do what Neil does. There's also a line at that point where Neil says... He wishes that they could rise like two angels in the night and just magically disappear. 
which is of course, you know, a beautiful line and also very reminiscent of the end of Firewalk with me. And I think that does bring me to the point where it's like, well, there is a way that Cooper could be a consolation and a comfort and and share something with Lara because that's what we see at the end of Firewalk with me, but we still don't know how he got to that point. Like in Mysterious Skin, we get Brian's path to the last scene. We get Neil's path. They're independent of one another. They pull together in the end, but they have their own steps along the way. With Cooper, where he ends at part 18, after all he's been through in his various incarnations and the return, he's off the path. Something's wrong. Something's not connecting there. And again, you know, to sound like a broken record here, I always just have to feel like fire the ending of Firewalk with me emotionally, psychologically, on some intuitive sense takes place after season 3, even though the characters look younger. Cooper's Neil or Brian or Laura experience, his Firewalk with me uh, remains to be seen. Speaking of that idea of an image of the younger selves as somehow the end of the story, the emotional end of what's happening, it, it reminds me of how in Mysterious Skin, there's a great scene early on with Wendy and Neil standing in a drive-thru. Beautiful scene. This movie really captures a kind of a beauty of a small town life, even though it's about characters who are frustrated and stifled and suffering in that environment. It also captures the poetry of it extremely well. Wendy, the character, puts the audio device up to her ear where you would listen to the soundtrack of the film if you were in your car. And she says she can hear the voice of God and then it begins to snow on them. And she has a line where she says that her and Neil, they could be standing there watching a film about our lives, everything that's happened so far, and the last scene would be us standing right here, just you and me. And that, I think, brings me to the most hopeful, happy ending, if you will, of Twin Peaks, of that ending in, in Firewalk with me with those two characters. However they got there, as Hussein Ibish has written about the idea that Laura is seeing Twin Peaks in that moment, that that's what the off-screen flickering is, seeing her life turned into a work of art, that they're watching the film of their lives, and they're standing there together, just those two. And that's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Since this concludes our three-month miniseries, we're going to be starting a new one in July, and that's going to be on Nicholas Ray, a director who has many Twin Peaks connections in his work. Of course, he came far before this. Uh, his prime period was really the 1950s, and that's when all three of the films we cover uh, were made. So the first one that we're going to cover is the earliest one on dangerous ground. Here is a sample of that to take you out. Yes, he's lived with corruption all his life, breathing the evil stench wherever he walks. Alluring arms can't touch him. Bribing hands can never reach him. Only the worst can he see in people. And only violence can satisfy the hate inside of him. Until one day, a dangerous manhunt leads him to the strangest woman he has ever met. Mm -hmm.